Namaste, Namaskaram, Vanakam, Namo Namaha, Jai Ganesha. Please visit our website at classicalyoga.org and there is a donate button if you would like to help us out. And please stand up for the Hindu, yoga, religious, spiritual, scientific, philosophical lifestyle. Today's podcast, Putting the Horse Before the Cart. A Solution to Trying to Prove the Existence of God. We're all probably familiar with the cliché, putting the cart before the horse. And we all know what that means. For example, trying to do or to be something before we logically even know what we are doing. For example, becoming a professional certified yoga teacher before one even realizes that yoga is all about the Hindu religion putting the cart before the horse. So, let's put the horse before the cart in the ongoing discussions about whether or not there is a God. YouTube is full of conferences, debates between theists and atheists, Facebook is full of these conversations. Twitter. So let's look at the proliferation of this Anglo-Saxon word, capital G-O-D, God. Factually, prior to 1,500 years ago, capital G-O-D, God, did not exist. There's food for thought. Now, the Anglo-Saxon word small g-o-d god did exist and referred to a multitude of spirit beings, if you will. But it was the early Christians that used capital g-o-d god to denote that there is only one true god. All of these other small g-o-d gods are less than or actually false. So from the get-go, when using the word capital G-O-D, God, one has to recognize that this really is a Christian term. But interestingly, this word has become a universal word for a one supreme being and If one truly believes there are only two genders, for there is an Anglo-Saxon word goddess, meaning female, God is considered a one male creator being. Now here is where the issue comes to the forefront. In all of these debates about the existence of God or not, One has to first and foremost realize what is the reference to this one male creator? Who is one talking about? Are they talking about Shiva? Are they talking about the Buddha? Are they talking about Mahavira? Are they talking about Vishnu? Or are they talking about the Abrahamic 
understanding of this one God. And clearly, it's the Abrahamic view of the one male creator being. So one should realize how confusing it is for those of the non-Christian religions to use this word, capital G-O-D, God, for if it refers to any one male creator being, then the word becomes very superficial and loses any meaning. So too, if capital G-O-D, God, is used to simply infer a universal creative process, this too becomes superficial and meaningless, certainly to the Christians. So first and foremost, let's put the horse before the cart and recognize that factually when people use capital G-O-D, God, it's referring to the one male creator being noun in a Christian context. So for example, for all the Hindus out there, for you to use the word capital G-O-D, God, you're being disingenuous to both the Christians and to the Hindus. For example, as a Hindu, simply go to a Christian church and inform them that God, capital G-O-D, is Rama, or Vishnu, or Krishna, or Shiva. And certainly, it can't be Kali or Durga, because those are feminine forms. Now, looking at these cliché, putting the cart before the horse, or in this case, putting the horse before the cart, of course, no human created a horse, but humans create the cart. This is very important. Of course, all the religious traditions of the world, and that is the word that's used, using English, to represent these various traditions around the world. All the religions of the world are, of course, man-made, but to be more accurate, why not human-made? Because women do get involved. So yes, all the religions of the world are human-made. So what? These, like many other things that humans make, are vehicles, if you will, to help individuals and families and whole communities try to get a grasp on their very reason for being, what life is all about, a sense of order. In fact, the original meaning of the root word religio or religare simply and profoundly meant simply trying to understand what binds or links individuals, communities, families together. A sense of moral order. This is very similar to the Sanskrit Hindu word dharma, which comes from the root dri meaning what holds, what holds an individual together, families together, whole communities together, life itself together. So with this understanding of these essential root meanings, is this not identical to the meaning of science to know? In science, we're simply seeking to know, to try to understand certain laws of life, what holds things together. So too, in religio or in dri, one is simply seeking to try to understand what binds or links or holds one together. Similarly, in the Hindu dharma, the Hindu religion, if you will, the word yoga, which has been sorely abused, 
has a similar connotation. It simply means, and profoundly, to yoke, Y-O-K-E, to yoke together. In other words, trying to understand one's self, one's family, the community, the world at large. So here we get a profound lesson of not putting the cart before the horse. Putting the horse before the cart is this respect and understanding of the difference between generalities and specifics when using human language. God is actually a very specific term that has actually been used in a very general way, which is actually causing the confusion. Certainly for Christians, again, when Christians use the word God, they're not talking about God Shiva or God Vishnu or God Krishna or God Allah even, or even God Yahweh. Very interesting. The Christians, of course, are referring to the one male creator being of biblical origins and who also simultaneously becomes the personal manifestation of Jesus. Again, another term that was taken, if you will, from the Jewish tradition. So apparently there was a Jewish rabbi named Yeshua who was killed some 2,000 years ago. And after his death, the emerging cult of Christianity renamed him Jesus and obviously changed his religion to Christianity. So if one looks to the roots of Christianity, which is Judaism, the God word did not exist. So even, quote-unquote, Jesus didn't know God because that word did not exist. Apparently, speaking Aramaic, he used the word Abba, meaning Father. So the words that we use are extremely important. So it's quite amazing that Christianity has become so dominant that probably much to their chagrin, the word God has become a universal word for a spirit being, or even simply a creative process. So in any discussion on who or what is God, it behooves us first and foremost to recognize that this Anglo-Saxon word, capital G-O-D, is referring to a one male creator being that also takes the form of Jesus. So obviously this is specifically Christian. Orthodox Jews, for example, say Yahweh if they say anything at all. Another monotheistic religion, the Muslims, of course, say Allah. And in their classic, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulallah, they're saying there's no Allah but Allah. So if one uses or misuses the word God to simply mean a universal something that created everything, then it becomes extremely superficial and very fuzzy. But if they use it in its proper context as a one male creator being, then the onus is upon those who use this term to prove that there is a one male creator being. And to date, 
No one has proved that there is a one male or female creator being. Enter the atheists and the age-old debates between theists and atheists. And it's important to point out that when we use the word theos, this is direct reference to this Christian one male creator being. So truly, if one does not believe in such a being, the word theos needs to be eradicated. In other words, there's no polytheist because Theos is referring to this one male creator being, God. For example, true Hindus are all atheists because we do not believe in the Christian one male creator being. Now, this is not to say that there is not a rich spiritual life, if you will, that many people around the world from time immemorial, have beseeched, had experiences of. That's really a, another matter in a sense. But when it comes to the proving of this one male creator being, endless discussions go on. Innumerable videos on YouTube of debates between the theists and the atheists. And the theists, of course, give all kinds of rationale, assumptions, inferences for the existence of this God, one male creator being. In other words, putting the cart before the horse, rather than simply putting the horse before the cart, and in all of these discussions, simply ask those who use this word God, and then define it as a one male creator being. Please prove that there is a one male creator being now. Not using inference, not using assumptions, but just simply prove that there is such a being. End of discussion. And yet because so few are willing to openly ask that question, or make that statement, you have endless discussions on inference, assumptions, intelligent design, a designer, etc. All, in a sense, rational, but get to the point. Please prove that there is this one male creator being. And if such a being is claimed to be omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing, all-present, then it should be very easy for such a one male creator being to prove his existence. And yet again, to date, no one has ever proved this, and yet endless debates go on between the theists and the atheists. Now, obviously, believing in a one male or female creator being, whatever name is used, whether it's Yahweh or God, Jesus, or Allah, or Shiva, or Vishnu, or Lao Tzu, or Buddha, 
Mahavira, Kali, Durga, Parvati, whatever name is used to denote a creator being, whether male or female, undoubtedly has brought untold people together. But it has also undoubtedly created tremendous violence for all of the quote-unquote others who don't believe in the one true male or female creator being. And since this human construct is obviously unprovable, why continue to fool ourselves and others by this putting the cart before the horse, this ill logic? Now, this could be the end of the podcast right here. However, let's go a step further. In endless debates of trying to prove the existence of God using inference and using assumptions, again, avoiding the main question or statement, please prove that this one male creator being exists. In these endless discussions, quite logically, the theist will point out, well, there must be a creator because all things have a creator that created them. However, could it be that, as science says, energy can neither be created nor destroyed? And if there's no energy, well, game over, no life itself. Could it be that creation just is, from extremely subtle forms to the most manifest and back again? Is this not a rational view? Creation just is. From prior to the Big Bang, to the Big Bang, to within the Big Bang, to the annihilation of all things. It is said that every moment a star is being destroyed. Every moment someone is dying, physically. Every moment someone is being born again. This endless cycle of creation, from its most subtlest forms, electromagnetic energy, to the Big Bang itself, and through eons of time and evolution to where we are now, to the ultimate destruction. For we do know that there will be a point when there is no more Earth, no more Sun. In these endless cycles of energy from the most subtle to the manifest and back again. And in a way, a real way, this is not what we do every single day. We all woke up from a deep nothingness sleep. Apparently nothing, but something must have been going on, subtle energies, or else we would not be here right now. So we go into this deep, absolute nothingness at night and wake up during the day and go back at night, repeating the cycle. Therefore, creation just is. Now, of course, within our human constructs, yes, we do look to creators within this creation. But again, as far as the ultimate experience of the creation of the universe, universes, we just don't know. And trying to assign an anthropomorphic deity is more than a bit ludicrous. Now, those that use or misuse the word God will often repeat the cliche that man is made in the image of God. Well, what about women? So let's be fair. 
So humans are made in the image of God. Well, we understand that the universe is billions of years old. The earth is billions of years old. So obviously it took a long time for this one male creator being to figure out how to create something in his image. So at the very least, it must have been extremely lonely for billions of years for this one male creator being, or female creator being, to figure out how to make something that looked like him or her. Now the next great debate topic for the theists, as opposed to the atheists, is, well, where does moral order come from? There must be an objective law giver for humans understand there's a certain sense of morality. Well, considering the many immoral things that we humans have done throughout the ages, religious or not, this kind of blows this understanding out of the water. For we humans can do vile, vile things to each other, to the planet, to animals, but we can also do much good. So here's where the inference comes into play, is why then do, hopefully many, but some humans, wish to do good to their fellow human beings? Practice a sense of morality, sense of ethics, charity, love, sacrifice. Well, here's where we can put the horse before the card. Instead of trying to assume or make a position for a one male creator being, who is goodness itself, that created all things, imperfect as these things are, why not for both theist and atheist alike to seriously ask this question and try to seek an answer to why? Why do humans do good things? Why do they do evil things? Hence the Christian creation, and not only Christian, but some other religions as well, have to create a counterpart, a devil, if you will, and a hellish place for all the evil doers. In other words, why the good? Why the evil? Is it simply a battle between a divine righteous God and a horrific devil. Let's try to put the horse before the cart and ask ourselves, well, what do we know? Obviously, we're unable to prove this one male or female creator being concept. So let's look at these inner impulses that manifest in actions of trying to do good and for many, actively trying to do bad or outright evil. Let's look at who we are. Obviously, we have a body, we have a mind, we have emotions. But is there something else that's in common to all of us? Let's reflect for a moment. Again, this energy that can neither be created nor destroyed, obviously, we all have that. We all have those inner energies manifest and subtle. Pure energy, if you will. 
We're all conscious. We have a sense of pure consciousness of beingness. We also have a sense of lightness as opposed to heaviness. We also have an inner light. If we did not, we would not have visions. We would not have dreams at night if it was all dark. On the inside, the creative impulse, inspiration, those magic and mystical moments, if you will, when an individual has a spontaneous intuition about something. All artists, musicians, those who create poetry, for example, will often say that they don't know exactly where that came from, where that song came from, where that inspiration came from. Obviously, it came from within. So is there not an inner sense of a joyful light feeling and also inner enlightenment, if you will, as things start to become clear in one's mind? So too, do we as humans, and not just humans, but animals as well, do we also not share a common feeling of love, using English, obviously. So here's some constants that we all share in common. We have a pure energy, a pure consciousness, or would, would not be game over. We also have an inner light and a feeling of lightness for who really wants to feel a sense of heaviness and the sense of depression? And we all have a sense of love. So an inner essence of love and light and energy, which as Hindus we call this the Atmana, that inner essence, which is really not your mind, Atmana. It's not the emotions, not the body. It's temporarily inhabiting a body, mind, and emotions but it's an inner essence shared by all of pure energy, pure consciousness, a feeling of light and inner illumination, if you will. And a simple way to experience the inner light is to simply pinch your optic nerve and you'll start to see probably a very bright light there, maybe little squares of light, maybe shards of light. Certainly if you've been hit on the head, you get that inner light experience. But there does come a time for many people when they simply close the eyes and you're really looking at what Hindus call the third eye point. This is why Hindus wear the, the bindi, the mark of the Hindu, to focus there. And that's in inwardly, that's where the pituitary and the pineal or pineal glands are, the command glands of the body. So there is that sense of inner light. And Everyone experiences the experience, which truly is, of love. So an inner essence of love and light and energy, if you will, which is recognized 
in the various traditions of the world, the various religious traditions of the world, as the soul, if you will, the spirit. Though we have to be careful with these words, first and foremost, soul and spirit refer to that which is incorporeal, so that means not the body. So it has a similar meaning to Atmana, but this inner essence is not the body. It's temporarily inhabiting the body, but it's not the body. Hence, this should kind of blow out blow out of the water the New Age cliche that I'm spiritual but not religious. In other words, that means one has no body. So religion is really the, again, to look at their central meaning of the word religio, it's the sense of trying to figure out what binds or holds things together, just like we're doing now, trying to figure out the inner essence of all of us, what's common to all of us, to be respected, and then also to respect the outer specifics. So as a point of clarification, it's important to realize or recognize that when the English words spirit and soul are used, they're actually still connected to the mind or the psyche. So that's why in Hinduism we use the word atmana because literally this is not the mind, nor the emotions, nor the body. Temporarily inhabiting the body, mind, and emotions. So, putting the horse before the cart, before we get into the whether or not there is a God, or Goddess, that created all things, why not put the horse before the cart and seek this commonality of love and light and energy that we all possess? This is what we do know. This is what we can prove. Again, energy, consciousness. If we don't have that, game over. Nothing to even speak about. Everyone recognizes that there is a sense of inner light because everyone has dreams and visions, inspirations, creativity. That's why we imagine things, we dream it. And then hopefully we continue the process, create it, and then move on. And we all have a certain degree or sense of love. Love and light and energy. We often say, Om, this are we, with emotions, mind, and body. We meaning the Hindus. So to be respected for how these inner forces are manifested on the outside. Hence, we put rightly the term generalities and specifics in a logical order so that we realize when we're talking about something in general and also when we're respecting something in its specifics. So herein, do we have the very reason why? For many humans, there's a sense of moral order. Why? Many humans do seek to do the right thing. Goodness, morality, righteousness, if you will. Not because of a god or goddess, but because of the inner being of all of us. This inner love and light and energy putting the horse before the cart. So then obviously the question comes, well, what about evil? What about all the bad things that we humans do? Well, let's look at these primal forces of pure energy, pure consciousness, light and love. Obviously we're talking about a degree here because we all know that energy can be used in a constructive way or a destructive way. 
the same hand that we reach out to another can be used to hurt another. The same energy that we use to feed others, to build hospitals, to take care of the fellow creatures on the planet. The same energy can also be used to build bombs and kill each other. The same light that one may have to reflect an inner inspiration can be used for nefarious purposes. Remember, light can also blind. Remember several years ago when some people were using laser beams to try to flash into the eyes of pilots so that they might have a, a wreck so light can be used to create or light can be used to also destroy and be very destructive. Our inner creativity can be used for very positive outcomes or very negative outcomes. Up to us how we use that inner light, that inner inspiration, that inner creativity. So too with love. Obviously, love can be very selfish, self-centered, narcissistic. So while the inner essence can be proved of this love and light and energy, it obviously manifests in various degrees. Enter the solution, if you will, or the understanding of good and evil. So what, if any, bottom line can we draw from all this and some solutions, perhaps? Well, look, folks, we're all in this together. We're all living on this one planet, Mother Earth. Hindus call it Bhumi Mata. To obviously be respected. And it's full of various species and all of humanity. So this is the duality that is life itself. So there's always going to be relative good and bad or evil, if you will. So obviously it seems that the more we mature... We seek a sense of goodness, whatever that means to us at the moment. It may just be selfish goodness, but we all seek a sense of goodness over badness, if you will, or evil. And certainly we have institutions that put away people who are really bad, and hopefully they get reformed. But we're all in this together. So why not seek some commonality, but then also always respecting the outer differences, so that we don't confuse the two, generalities and specifics. So could we perhaps agree that we all have this inner essence, and the animals too, of love and light and energy? And just consider for a moment the love of pets that many humans have. And actually, they can teach us perhaps a lot more than our fellow human beings, or we can teach ourselves, because most of them express a tremendous sense of love and loyalty and forgiveness. Hmm. Great lessons. So here we are. We're all here together as humans on planet Earth. And we have this inner essence of love and light and energy. So doesn't it make sense to recognize that and then respect how that is outwardly displayed and practiced 
And obviously, as a, if you will, young soul, we misuse this energy and this light and this love. It becomes a destructive energy, a destructive light, an imagination that creates bombs, etc. And it becomes a very selfish love. But we soon figure out that that just doesn't work. It doesn't make for a life of contentment, a life of relative peace. So the more we grow and mature, we realize that we seek more of this positive energy. That's why people do reform. More positive sense of light and imagination and creativity and a more wholesome sense of love. So why not, in English, obviously repeating to ourselves, love, light, and energy, this are we, with emotions, mind, and body. And then respect the different choices of our fellow human beings. This gives us great compassion for ourselves and for others as well. And then again, recognizing we live in this world of duality, just there are times to correct ourselves and then correct others. This is what a good parent does. This is what a good teacher does. So as this love, light, and energy, we take care of our body, mind, and emotions and respect the different expressions of that, and especially when it comes to the religions of the world. And remember, in essence, if we look at religio as simply and profoundly trying to bind together or link together, in other words, to get our act together, everybody's religious in that sense. Whether or not a person decides to join one of the established religious traditions of the world or not, in a sense, that's um, irrespective of the basic principle of religio, trying to get one's house in order, if you will. However, if one does choose to follow one of these established religious traditions, or who knows, maybe there's some new ones to come yet, follow those like one would follow anything else, like they'd follow their profession, and then respect the other professions, respect the other religions of the world, not making one exclusive. That really is a very selfish kind of love, very selfish use of energy and our inner creativity. So here's an acronym that may help, and it's actually a principle we call the NAT principle, N-A-T. So in life in general, and certainly when it comes to religions, don't look at one's religion as the way, meaning the one and only way. It's the way for you, of course, but not the one and only way. Just as your spouse is the one for you, but it's not the only one. So your religion is not the way, which is one extreme. And the other extreme is kind of a new age, old age, universality. It's not no way, meaning always. This is kind of the knee-jerk reaction to the pure fundamentalist, the way people. When people say that such and such is universal or for everybody, such as today's yoga movement where they say yoga is for everybody. No, yoga is very specific. That's Hindu. So that's another extreme to the the way people is the no way or the all way people. It means the same thing. Remember, all is one is bad math. There is an inner unity, yes, but we need to respect the outer diversity, which is life itself. So mightn't there be a balance in the middle? Just like the great Miyagi son said to his disciple Daniel's son, go find the balance eh, in life. Find that middle ground, that balance. So there's a balance between the way and no way, or no way and the way. That's the A in the middle, hence the NAT principle. Recognizing that one's way in life, and certainly one's religion, is not the way, and it's not no way, but it is a way. 
This could go a long way to help alleviate the ongoing tribal violence that we see throughout the world. So we recognize there can be a very positive aspect to tribal nature. Remember in Graves' Seven Levels of Human Aspiration, it's reactive and tribal. And these can be good things. I mean, we need to get out of the way of a speeding bus, for example, be reactive. But there's also a time to transform reactive and tribal into being proactive and setting goals, prioritizing our life. In other words, seeing outside the box, seeing outside the tribe sometimes, so that we can be tribal but not exclusively tribal. I mean, we have our families, we have our jobs, our professions, our religion. That's our tribe, for example. But we don't want to become negatively tribal. That's when we fall into the the way pure fundamentalist, if you will, mindset. So seeking to be proactive, take command of our life. Again, let's all turn the gaze back in on ourselves and really ask ourselves, who are we? And are we not an inner essence of love and light and energy with a very specific body, mind, and emotions to be respected? So some food for thought, hopefully some soul food for thought. So obviously, I, we here, are coming from a Hindu perspective, but as Hindus, we also wish our fellow human beings on the planet well, regardless of who they are. So we often end our satsangs, our gatherings of truth, if you will, trying to seek an ongoing understanding of what's true and what's false. We send out blessings to the whole world and we wish other people well. We wish them an auspicious life. We wish them a peaceful life, a full life, a tranquil life. And we pray and try to help all those who are sick and suffering as we go from untruth to truth, all of us humbly admitting our ignorance, our lack of knowledge in many areas of life, as we move to an ever more enlightened state of being, in light we're meant to be, uncovering the inner light, the antar jyotir, and then again trying to tap into this inner essence, this inner nectar of what Hindus call the atmana, or your soulful experience, if you will. So as Hindus, we would say, Sarvesham svastir bhavatu, sarvesham shantir bhavatu, sarvesham purnam bhavatu, sarvesham mangalam bhavatu, sarve bhavantu sukinaha, sarve santu niramayaha, sarve bhadhani pashyantu ma kasjidhukha bhag bhavet, asato ma sadgamaya, tamaso ma jyotir gamaya, mrityor ma amritam gamaya. And we end with peace, peace. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi. But let us all remember, as others have said, that peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. Om Peace, Peace, Peace.